What are you doing? I'm sucking a polo. But most people would put that in their mouth and yes. suck on it and not like continue. No, no. To pull here's it out here's of what mouth. I was thinking. I was thinking that um, I'd put it down now because I didn't want people to hear the polo rattling around. Where are you going to put it down? It's. Uh, I wish I'd thought it through. I wish I hadn't started the polo in the first place. Why don't you put it down on here? This is garbage. Okay. There we go. It's very tempting having it sat there, though. Like the ring. Well, I'll move it away from you. The one ring. Okay. Okay. Hello? Welcome to Beetlejuice. Hello? With Jeff Lloyd. What? Because everything's better with the Beatles. Yeah, it's just something a bit more, because it sounds a bit dead when you hear it, just as an intro. How about this, then? Ladies and gentlemen, the Beatles. This is Beetlejuice with Jeff Lloyd. Yeah, we'll have it, we'll have it. Before we get started, I just want to let people know why this episode is so long. And it's because the Beetlejuice Fan Club, which is a conversation with Dr. Christine Feldman Barrett, author of A Women's History of the Beatles. Hands up, Sarah. Why is she, what is she a doctor of? I think some kind of social science <laughs> at the U- Griffith University. Where is that? Brisbane, Australia. How cool. Yeah. I've heard there are a lot of Nazi flags on display in that city. Really? You told me that. Did I? Not Nazi flags, the Nazi symbol. Swastikas. That's the word. When did I say that? When we first got together and you had someone recently been to, been to Brisbane for work. Yeah. And then we were going to go together for your work the following year. We were going to go to Melbourne. And you're like, oh, thank God, because when I went to Brisbane, like there were just all these swastikas around. I mean, I don't remember seeing swastikas around. And I thought I... there was like some racist I, I remember... undercurrents to your visit to Brisbane. Well, there were. like That I... doll. Was it the doll? Oh, yes. So uh, I, I did see uh, a shop which sold those dolls that we uh, all remember from Enid Blyton's Noddy stories. So I saw that. And also a couple of people made some comments to me while I was there. Oh, which shit. Was, which was a bit like, come on, we're both, uh, we're both, white, we're both white, white people. We know the score, which I was kind of horrified by. But well, I've completely made up the swastika thing. I don't ever remember. I've been walking around for a decade thinking that Brisbane is just a wash in swastika. Yes. <laughs> That's horrible of me. And, and you know, I'm sure there are plenty of people who would be upset to hear their city slurred in such a way. Well, then I just want to apologize and acknowledge that the problem is my own and has come from a place of pure ignorance. Anyway, Christine is uh, great and it was such a good conversation. I agonized about whether to cut it down to 20 minutes like I usually do or give you the full version. And I thought, we're nearly at the end of the run. We're nearly, and why edit out good stuff? Exactly. Why deprive people of that? Which then makes me feel so bad because so many of the previous conversations have been so good, but I didn't really want to scare people with an hour and a half long podcast earlier in the season. That's reasonable enough. Whereas at this point, I just think, oh, people are either listening to it or they're not, and why not give them the the whole thing? I think that's really wise. Mm. Do you have an affinity for horseback riding? Have you never seen me on a horse? No, we've never horseback road together. That's interesting, isn't it? Yeah. I don't see our son being great at it. No. And whatever you're thinking about him on a horse and his sort of awkward physicality with that kind Multiply of Multiply it by five. Yeah, because somebody once, I can't remember who it was, but I, I, I had to do a horseback thing for a work thing once and someone said they've never seen a human being look more rigid. <laughs> You know, that, this idea that you and the creature become as one. Yeah. That doesn't happen. I happen see. Yeah, I see a lot of 
your butt hitting it in a bad way. I like to pet a horse. I like to blow up its nostrils. You blow up the nostrils of a horse? Yes, there was a woman who used to be on TV called Barbara Woodhouse, who was actually a dog trainer, but she said if you want a horse to be your friend for life, you should blow up its nostrils. I've done that a few times. Oh. I like a horse. I think I feel like just the tiniest flicker of fear around a horse. I would never worry that a cow would go wild, but I would worry that a horse would go wild. Which is what happened to Ringo. Ringo has been through so much when you get down to it. <laughs> it's always Ringo. It's always happening to Ringo. During the Penny Lane Strawberry Fields video shoot, they'd hired this Swedish director who was a TV director, but they really had this idea in their head that Swedish cinema and experimental stuff was where it was at. So they hired this guy, I think largely because he was Swedish and they met him in a nightclub, and he put them on horses in this video. They were all pretty nervous with it, but Ringo's kept bolting off. Ringy, ringy. I know. I think of I wouldn't want Gene to horseback ride mm. because of what happened to Christopher Walken. You mean Christopher Reeve? That's the one. As it was coming out of my mouth, I was like, this feels <laughs> wrong. Christopher Reeve. Yeah. I saw when I was doing some research for the show the other week, I, um, I noticed that George and Ringo had gone together to the premiere of Superman 2, which I found... George and Ringo. Yeah, which I found... Of all the films, that that seemed strange to me. And then I worked out that it was directed by Dick Lester, who did A Hard Day's Night and Help and, oh. you know, was an old friend of theirs. So then it then it made sense to me. But I think anyone of our generation is a, yeah, thinks of Christopher Reeve as a, a cautionary Yeah, a reason to never horseback ride. The moment of my life that I most wish I could, A, relive, but B, if it had been caught on camera, was you getting on the back of a camel in India and that camel standing up. Oh, we did camel ride together, didn't we? That was just the greatest thing seeing. As we've said before, Sarah is a highly reactive person. If they put you on reality TV, you you would become a sensation overnight. And your reaction to the, the camel standing up was one of the great moments of my life and it is upsetting to me that the world doesn't get to see that poor world the Beatles had been on horses before they went to some ranch I think when they first Those, toured America I mean they would look great on horseback all four of them together well, they, they did look great on horseback I think they were just nervous and then of course Paul developed this real affinity with horses and they were a big part of uh, what him and Linda would do. Let me get into this yeah. question then so when how did both Paul and Linda approach they're vegetarianists. Is it like he was and she wasn't or she was and he wasn't and then one converted the other and then it became one of their like raison d'etres? The story is when they had that farm in Scotland, which he still has, but he just doesn't. So they're eating there. meat. Yeah, they're, they're both yeah. eating a burger and they buy this farm in Scotland. And, they, they, and they've got sheep. And the the story he, he has sometimes told is that they're eating a leg of lamb and they look out the window and make the connection and that's... That's too simple. I mean, that's the story he's telling. Although that's very similar to how Jon Stewart talks about his own vegetarianism. Mm. So I, th- I, th- I think that's the story. But, you know, they um they would a- acquire all these animals. The, f- the famous story is that they buy this farm in Sussex and next door there's a farmer who breeds wild boars, wild pigs... And there's a hole in the fence and they escape onto Paul and Linda's land. He comes over and says, oh, a few of my boars have escaped onto your field. Can I uh, can I get them back, please? And they say no, because they know that they're going to be slaughtered. So these things then live on their land and beyond. And now you've got an increase in the wild boar population in that part of England. Wow. Because of them allowing these 
wild boar to go free. Oh, we when my family came on our trip to the United Kingdom in the summer of 1989, we stayed at the Wild Boar Hotel. Ah. They are very, very timid, shy creatures. But if you get boars, bet- yeah. a wild, a wild mm-hmm. boar mm-hmm. is a timid, shy creature. Unless you get between them and their young, and then you better watch out. That's true about all creatures, isn't it? Yes, but I think they they can charge you and knock you over. I think they. Really... Oh, I mean, I would be terrified terrified by a boar. How do you think your mum would react if she heard that fact about oh. a wild boar? Oh, it's being a mom, <laughs> something like that. <laughs> Dude, did you ever see, uh, I was going to call it Who's Afraid of Benjamin Button, but I don't think that's what the title is. <laughs> did you see that Benjamin Button no, film? No, but I'm aware of the premise of it. Anyway, at the end, this big, you know, one of these epic films, and at the end it's something like, some people are always a... Right. An adventurer, an explorer, a mother, and we see each character, and his mother wasn't the woman who gave birth to him. And we went to see it on Christmas Day, which in the very Jewish town where I grew up is a very big day to see a film. So there were no seats. So my brother and I had to sit separately from my parents. So there was like a big gap between our seats. And it was like, some people are born to explore. Some people are born to fight. Some people are born to mother. And my brother and I looked at each other and on cue heard from elsewhere in the theater. (laughs) (laughs) It's just who she is. It's just Just who she is, a mother first and foremost. Um... Is there any, when you were talking about like different ways in which the Beatles have magpied Mm. off other artists, is there any, anyone who sort of spoke publicly about being anything other than flattered? Well, there have been lawsuits. So there was a lawsuit over Come Together. Who sued them over that? It was the publisher, Chuck Berry's publisher, Morris Levy, who heard that line, which was a straight lift, here come old flat top. Um, so that's a line from a Chuck Berry song. Yeah. Now you could argue a lot of rock and roll songs reference each other and stuff. And and from the way Paul, I think, has described it, Come Together was initially much more of a lift of that song. And then he gave it that sound. So it, it's not recognisably the same. But even so, it was enough for them to come to a settlement where John had to cover a bunch of songs owned by Morris Levy in the 70s. Oh, so that's how they worked it out. Yeah. How embarrassed by that? Like when they wind up sued over stuff like that, how embarrassing did they find it versus like, oh, fuck you, you're being difficult. This is how music and rock and roll works. Like like in in comedy, right, there is nothing more humiliating Mm. than suggesting that you stole something from someone else. But is that not quite the same with music? I, th- I think covering your tracks is is the thing. So John, when George got done for My Sweet Lord. And Ray, what was that like? The chiffons, he's so fine. Oh, yeah, yeah that, bit... I do hear that. Yeah. <laughs> and George maintained that he, he hadn't lifted it and that it was... It was just knocking around. And, uh, whereas John, in an interview, said, oh, yeah, he lifted it and he didn't cover his tracks. That was his, he hadn't talked to George about it, but that was his appraisal of the situation, which suggests that is part of the songwriting process. I don't know if you saw, there was a video that went viral a little while ago of Paul Simon, it's really good, describing how he wrote Bridge Over Troubled Water on a chat show. And he goes through the different bits and then shows you which bit is kind of a rip-off and how he covered it up. And 
I think that's just part of songwriting. You mm. listen to stuff, you're inspired by it, and you think, okay, how can I take that and make it my own thing? And there's this record called Watch Your Step by Bobby Parker. And if you listen to that, you can hear the 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 riff that is basically recycled for I Feel Fine, Paperback Writer and Day Tripper in it. But they do a good enough job of taking that and making it their own thing. Were there any other sort of settlements they had to make? Well, the, I'll tell you what was one was All You Need Is Love. Go on. You know, there's loads of bits of other famous classical music in that. So it starts right. with La Marseillaise. One of them is In the Mood by Glenn Miller, you know, and George Martin arranged that on over the end of All You Need Is Love, thinking it's out of copyright, just like classical music is, we're fine using it. But because it was Glenn Miller's arrangement of it, which wasn't out of copyright, oh. they ended up having to make a settlement and it didn't come out of the Beatles share. It came out of EMI's and I think George Martin must have They were have like, had, you're going to pay for this? Yeah. If you could do one style of dance well, what would it be? I'd just like to be able to dance in a way that I ever, ever had to go to a wedding or a party that it didn't feel excruciating to me to to go onto the dance floor. I feel that I'm so bad and so arrhythmic in my body that I am a, a, a spectacle. How bad I am is a spectacle. No, I think we've had a, like, it's been so long since we went to a wedding, but I think we could have a sweet slow dance. I, I keep my feet keep banging into each other. Or it's just a sweet slow I dance. I keep feeling like I'm about to fall over. It's so upsetting. This is inspired by the fact that the Ringo was the best dancer in the Beatles, mm-hmm. right? You were and so, what are you basing that on? Uh, you said. Stuff and I, that I, he has said and eyewitness reports and the fact <laughs> that the others really didn't like dancing. Paul seems to like it more than he used to, but George especially just didn't want to be I can see that. put onto a dance floor. Um, and you're such a great dancer. I am. I am so good. To the extent that a crowd would gather around you if you you started dancing at a wedding. Yes. So I went to a wedding in, I want to say 2003. It was the year that Crazy in Love came out. And that song came out. I mean, I think I made a, in retrospect, I think I made a spectacle of myself (laughs) that was quite inappropriate because I was there as as someone's plus one. So the bride and groom didn't even know who I was. And I just cleared the floor when you say cleared the floor you don't mean everyone left and went to the bar you meant a circle for a huge circle formed around you yeah and then then someone said to my then boyfriend like you should get that girl a pole which is very not great in a lot of levels i thought there was some family wedding you attended where somebody had to have a word with you oh no you're confusing stories oh so that was that, and like versions of that have happened for, to me at a couple different weddings, but that was the most extreme one. No, what happened in 2006, I was in Dallas, Texas. I was in Dallas, Texas with my friend Celeste and Amanda, and Celeste was a Texan, and she was from Dan. They were like, they were going to like take us girls to a hoedown. It was like, we're going to take you to a hoedown where everybody's wearing 10-gallon hats. And so we did, and the music you know, was playing and I was sort of dancing and there was some point where a woman and what I would say about my dancing, what I believe it offers is a contrast between facial expression 
and commitment of movement. Right. So I can't do it anymore because I'm a little too old now. But when I was like 25, I could really throw my body around. But then my facial expressions were were serving a sort of comedy to a, a, a which made the eroticism of my movements. <laughs> There was a tongue-in-cheek quality to what I was doing, or so I tell myself. So I was doing this kind of thing, and this woman, who I would think was a bit drunk, this Texan woman, not that that means any one thing or another, came up to me and was like, you should, said something like, you should watch what they're, you're doing their children around. And I froze and went into the bathroom and just sobbed. Oh, I felt so ashamed. I felt disgusting. Oh, I know. And then Celeste had to come in and hold me. And I mean, I was, I was just, I, I, I was humiliated. It was like, it was like your big fear as a kid that you're like doing something a little free and someone tells you you're disgusting. I mean, it was, it was funny later, but it was so awful. I was once at a theme park in Sweden with my friends and their son, who was probably four or five at the time. And we happened across this outdoor music show for children. So we sit down in the front row and enjoy the entertainment. And at some point, there was a dancer dressed as a grasshopper <laughs> who came out into the crowd looking for someone to dance with. And I could see them making a beeline for me and I just felt so awful. I thought, oh, please don't, please don't. This is my worst nightmare. I'm so uncomfortable in my own body. I move so awkwardly. Please don't do it. And then this other part of my brain is thinking, you're sat next to a four or five-year-old. Do you want that four or five-year-old to grow up thinking that just having fun and moving your body is is a bad thing and that you should be inhibited? And I tried to be my better self. I let this grasshopper grabbed me by the hand and start dancing with me in front of all these people and actually it went okay and I loosened up and I started to feel good and I thought oh, oh, this doesn't matter this doesn't matter this doesn't matter I'm sort of enjoying myself I feel a little bit free and this kid is beaming at me and thinks it's the funniest thing he's ever seen at which point I fell over in such a dramatic way. <laughs> it was like a cartoon slip on a banana skin. What did I, you slip on? I don't even know, but I know that I must have been dancing in such an insane way that my my heel felt like it was above my head at one point. <laughs> and then I landed, bang, on my ass, oh. And I couldn't... It, and it, it was, did it hurt? Yeah, physically? yeah. Was, you know when you, you fall yeah, on your ass in a way that you, you, you... It's difficult to get up and then for the rest of the day you're clutching onto it. So then <laughs> I had to like stand up in front of all these people who were laughing and laughing and laughing because it was funny. Oh, honey. Yeah. So if you ever do get the impulse to be free, don't, don't do don't it. don't do it. Off the back of the conversation about which Beatles have seen ghosts mm. or UFOs... Mm. Do you think you could stay friends with someone who'd seen a ghost? I think I am friends with people who've who? seen Who? Who among your friends have seen ghosts? Maybe my mum has said stuff about when she's worked in the hospital and people have died. I, I don't know. No, I think, I feel like I've heard her say things about like, you can feel life leaving, but that's mm. not seeing a ghost. You've said to me that often 
in the moment of something inexplicable happening. That's later explained, like a bang in our house. The first place your brain goes to is, oh, ghosts must be real then. Well, actually, what I think really happens is, truly what happens is if something weird occurs, because a little bit of schizophrenia runs in my family. I don't remember you telling me that before we had a decision to have a child. Well, (laughs) but I, I just... Any day now, I'm ready for those voices to come. I am constantly concerned about like losing my mind. So that's really what I think first. I'm having a mental breakdown. Remember when we were in that Italian hotel room? I decided I was having a breakdown. Oh, we were were in 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 Tuscany a few years ago. We were in this hotel room. Who's telling it? You or me? you, You tell it. And basically, it was this, it was a nice hotel and there was a turndown service. So we woke up one morning and it was pitch black because of what they'd done to the windows and then you open it the the stripes and it's like eight in the morning tuscan sunshine in july it was incredible the next morning i open my eyes and there's a red glow permeating the room what had happened was whoever did the turndown service didn't do the bolted shutters. So the sun was coming through these sort of thick red drapes. And I absolutely, my first thought was apocalypse. I'm having a breakdown. The sky has turned to blood. I was like, I'm hallucinating that the sky has turned to blood. It's not that, <laughs> it's not that the sky has turned to blood. It's that I'm, I've hallucinated it in the, tomorrow is the day that they put me in the asylum. You, you feel that close to a mental breakdown at any given time. Yeah, that you're just like, sometimes I'll just be reading and I'll think, what if I just forget? What if my brain just goes crazy right now and I can't ever read ever again? <laughs> Who's doing the harmony on Photograph? That is such a nice song. Very moving song. I didn't even know the anecdote about, I mean, I'm not surprised, but that he sang it at the tribute concert for George. Yeah, it was really moving. And I was moved by that song even before I knew that detail. It's funny, Ringo, you know, sometimes I can think it's 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 charming but slightly odd that they let him sing on Beatles records because his voice is one thing and then the other's voices is something completely Yes, but it's like different. that. You can hold a tune, but he kind of sounds like a man in a pub. But not on that song. No, and it's it's a really lovely song and he performed it at the concert for George and there's something every now and again Ringo will sing something and it's quite moving I saw a video of him singing you know I call your name mm-hmm. and you're not there uh, only a YouTube video at some tribute to John from I think the 80s and that's really moving as well so moving uh, you didn't answer my question um it, it was George on harmonies and backing vocals. So Ringo's voice is really bolstered by George on that track and, uh-huh. and George plays guitar on it as well. They, they did some good stuff together, the two of them. That was very, very good. Mm. S- to stand means to obsess. Yes. Yeah, so the exact right. I realize I've never fully understood what that means. It's based on the Eminem Stanning. song. Oh, I know, Stan. Yeah. You know who I would love to meet? Who? Eminem. Really? I, I find him a very difficult character to work out. Let me be really clear. I'm not saying, get me in a room with Eminem. I think he'd really like me. I had a friend who said once, and it did tickle me. She was like, I feel Clooney would really like me. I thought that's a funny thing. Like, what celebrities do you think? You just got to meet me. You'll get a real kick out of me. Put the Beatles into the order of which one would like you the most to the least if they met you. I don't think any of them would particularly like me. Of course they would. No, I don't think so. I think John would be the one who would like you the most. Because like you, he values truth 
Over no, but all it's else. about how and, and you. And it was irritating to like it's irritating to you if you feel that people no. aren't being authentic. Or because truthful. you can't be normal. Like you can't really be normal around famous people. I struggle to be normal around famous people. The famous person that we know, if you're interested, and if you would leave it in, who I find it, it the easiest to be myself around is Ed Miliband by a mile. I almost feel like he's my son and I'm going to give him some <laughs> stern talking to. So I feel very comfortable around him. And I don't know how much of that is him or me or what, but he's really easy to be around in that way. I think Paul would like me the best. because Paul might have seen you on like live at the Apollo he, or Mock the Week. We, he, we, we, I've not been on Mock the Week. Thank you. Oh, what's the other one? Would, would I, I lie, lie to you? you? Anyway, the point is, is Paul that, watches loads of British comedy on TV. He might have seen you on maybe one of those he shows. Did. He loves it. But the point is, is that I feel like what I would need to do mm. to ingratiate myself to Paul mm. is quite straightforward. I feel George, what would you need to do? Um, just be be warm and tell him, like, say a nice thing. And I just think I could be relaxed around Paul, whereas. I'd be really afraid of George and mm. really afraid of John, and I would just sort of clam up. And Ringo, I don't know. So it depends which Ringo you get. Which Ringos are there that you get in that situation? Well, I just think, I don't know. I've, I've met him so briefly. I mean, literally said hello to him and as as we passed, and, and that's it. But I think the the Ringo who put out the video telling people, their re autograph requests were going to be tossed is possibly one that you might meet as a member of the public these days. Days I don't know. But if you're a group of people who went out for dinner with Ringo, maybe you'd, you'd get on great with him. Maybe. The only one I feel any confidence about is Paul, and it's minimal. When Paul apologized for Magical Mystery Tour, mm. when you're talking about like that was the first thing that they did that sort of was was um, panned, yes. widely panned. Um, what did... And that he was the one who had to do the apologizing, not only because he was their show pony in a way, but because it was his idea. What did the others think of his apology? Did they, did, they, did they give a shit? Did they think, don't fucking apologize. We're allowed to experiment. And he was like, he's such a plea. Or were they like, get out there and, and, and say that we're sorry for something so dumb? I don't know, but I'm fascinated to know the answer to that question. I think they all kind of distanced themselves from it a bit and said, oh, it's Paul's thing, really. But a bit later, I don't know if in the heat, because it was the next day he went on television to face How the music. How did they know, like, pre-social media, was it just all the papers wrote up that it was awful? Yeah. And how um, bothered do you think the other three were? It's difficult to say, because nobody likes having right. the feel like a country's turned on them or have we just done something that's going to jeopardise our ability to mm. make money for the rest of our career, which maybe is what it felt like in the heat of the moment in those 24 hours. Um, they were lucky to have Paul in that he would go on TV and take the flack and do image management. And I think it would also drive them a bit insane that Paul sort of appointed himself spokesman in this way. Interesting. But it was after the death of Brian Epstein. It was this weird period. I was just thinking that I'm someone who um, has never really, in a certain way, had a gang that I enjoy. But anyway, the point is, is that sometimes I'll hear these stories about the Beatles and really wish I had a gang. Yeah, they, I mean, they're, they're the ultimate they're gang. The ultimate, it's the yeah. ultimate brotherhood. Yeah. It's it's jealousy inducing the closeness in a certain way. Yeah, and 
it couldn't hold like that forever. But when it was, but man, it sort of did in its own weird. Because they were so it? tight, they were so tight anyway. But you think about when you watch that um, what's his name Martin Scorsese documentary about George, yeah. and then the way that Ringo gets choked up yeah. talking about, it, and then you're like, it did hold forever. Well, it did, but I mean, the, the 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 tightness of it, they were so tight as a unit, and then they became so famous, and they're at the middle of this insanity, and they're the only ones who treated each other the same. The intensity of that is quite incredible and the pressure to be like the others in that gang. It's its amazing. I do. Well, I wish I had a gang like that. Would you like to receive applications from listeners to, to form a gang? Yes. What type of qualities are you looking for in your gang, gang members? Open to criticism. <laughs> very funny. Very smart but I want them to wear their smartness and their funniness lightly. Sweet natured. (laughs) And down to party. (laughs) But they have to be accepting of my partying limits, which is that I don't like to stay out late and I don't like to get very drunk. (laughs) I get anxious. I get anxious when people get too... Out of control. I don't like anything out of control. So I want someone who wants to go home when I want to go home. It doesn't make me feel shitty because I don't want to party. Yeah. They're not going to pressure you to have have a couple of drinks. drinks. I don't want anyone who's very obsessed with their own food intake. (laughs) I don't, I'm thinking about things that that alienate me from other people. How would you like people to apply? Would you like a curriculum vitae? A short essay on why they should be your best friend? Give me, like, write me 300 words on why you think that you'd be good (laughs) at my game. (laughs) Do they need to include a photo? Oh, <laughs> this is, as we've discussed, the barons are very look focused. Mm. Which I people keep... might not guess having seen your husband. Um, this is going from some of what I gleaned from your interview with Dr. Christine. Did you read either Cynthia or Patty's memoirs? I've read Cynthia's. She wrote a couple, one called A Twist of Lennon. Oh, I didn't see that coming as a title. <laughs> uh, and I think one just called John or something, John. Wow, she wrote two? Yeah, like decades apart. And I've never read read Patty's, which prompted the question that I asked Christine, and I asked it as if it was other people who do it and not me, where Mm. we attach all this value to books written by, say, Alistair Taylor, Brian Epstein's employee, or Jeff Emmerich and not to the women. But I think my reason for not reading Patty's memoir is I'm not interested in Eric Clapton or anything post-George, really. I like Eric Clapton. Mm. I think, do you think it's more about, like... I want to hear the story from someone who's a writer. But that's not true. Like that Craig Brown book, One, Two, Three, Four. Like that guy writes so well. Do you know a lot of people hate that book? They're Beatles fans. Why? Two reasons, I think. The the first one is they think the chapter on Yoko is a real hatchet job. And then the second one is that they're feeling. And I think there's some justification to this, but I'll tell you why I like it as a book in a second, is is that it's a bunch of stories that are already out there and it's not t- bring, adding anything new to the story. Whereas what I feel that book is, hmm. is for people who aren't like me, mm-hmm. a great peep into the kaleidoscope of the Beatles and the the way they touch all these different elements of life and culture and it's properly funny it's a funny book i think if you are someone who really loves yoko and is very aware actually of the horrible misogyny and racism that yoko has put up with in a lot of beatles books and the media over the years i think that chapter is a bit harsh 
Did you talk to Daisy and Chloe about that chapter? I'd really like to hear what they have to say about it because I really, really loved those two women. And I really enjoyed that chapter about Yoko. And I'd like to, if you're going to have someone who's going to give you an opinion that's going to disagree with yours, you want it from someone you find super likable to start with. Mm. So I'd like, I'd like to go through with a pen and pencil the chapter and go, I think this is a fair thing to say. I think this is an interesting detail. I don't think this feels troubling. Tell me why I'm wrong and see where I end up. I think that book isn't necessarily for people like me or Daisy or, or Chloe or the people I've interviewed on this podcast. But if <gasps> but you that's have not got, what we're talking... If, if, if you've got a, 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 a friend and you want to give them something that gives them a sense, the Beatles, and, and why it's not the same as another band and what a cultural phenomenon they are and, and why the ripples are still felt now, I think that book does a really good job of, of showing that. I loved it. I don't know the story, the I don't like your tie story as it relates to George Martin. The j- jingle your jewelry from the back row, I know that. Yeah. Or whatever that story is, I know that one, but I don't know the... It's, rattle- it's those rattle- of you in the cheap seats, clap your hands, the rest of you just yeah, rattle so your jewelry. so that I know all about, but I don't Great know Great moment in like- British social history. Oh my God. The class system, it shows the changes that are afoot. Do you know what I always foot. think of when I think of that? I think about the thing you told me about Mrs. Merton. Oh, uh, what first attracted you to the millionaire Paul Daniels? Those are two of my favourite... But can you imagine as, as, as a comic, side. you know, think, think what it's like to go on stage and have a line like that in your pocket and the, the confidence that you would need to deliver it, that you could do a great job of it in the moment. So wonderful. The George Harrison line was uh, at the end of the first meeting with George Martin. He kind of goes through everything with them and and says, is there anything you don't like? And George Harrison just says, yeah, I don't like your tie. And that is a great icebreaker. And George Martin has said, musically, he wasn't 100% convinced, but their personalities were what sold him on the Beatles. Now, there are different versions of of that story and the various things that were going on at EMI and the horse trading at at, at the time. But, you know, he, he... he saw, He tells that story, and that story's been told and retold and retold because it's indicative of how special their personalities and what, what they had were and how I that was see. something he could work with. I see. Okay, great. Which do you think is funnier? The, the rattle your jewellery. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I, I don't like your tie is good, but the other one is just spectacular. Boy, I'm emotional <laughs> just thinking about it. All right, to conclude, just a statement. I would love to hear about when the Beatles' parents quit their job, which you said was something you might get into in your last episode. Yes, I haven't done any research into it, but um, I don't ever remember reading about that point. So, yeah, they all bought their parents' houses. and But the quit yes. the job. Yeah. It's a different thing, isn't quit it? Quit the job is what becomes interesting. Yes. If your career skyrocketed in comedy in the way that the Beatles did in music... It's not... Ho- okay, yeah, when that, when that happens. Would you tell your mum that she could quit her job as a therapist you've been asking me to do some challenging impressions of my mother if if that woman won 200 million pounds on the lottery she would not be quitting that job no she loves to work but i feel oh am i allowed to say no (laughs) (laughs) all right that's the penultimate episode Mm -hmm. the last one of these next week Mm -hmm. thank you as ever pleasure And now follows 
uh, a long and I think extremely interesting conversation with Dr. Christine Feldman Barrett, author of A Women's History of the Beatles. Beetlejuice with Jeff Lloyd. Limitless, undying love for the band who did it all. And time now for Beetlejuice Fan Club, where we get to celebrate someone filling the world with the Beatles in 2021. And today it's a senior lecturer at Griffith University in Australia who's written a terrific book called A Women's History of the Beatles. It's not just about the women in the Beatles' lives, but also about their female fans, the influence of the Beatles on women at the time, after they broke up, and today. It is full of great stories and it is a completely different take on the Beatles story. Dr. Christine Feldman Barrett, hello. 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 So there's lots and lots to talk to you about. Um, the book is fantastic. Before we get into it, I want to find out about you. You're in academia. Uh, what what was your route there? If you pardon the expression, was it a long and winding road? Indeed. It was very much a long and winding road. I did go to university straight after high school, and I grew up in a super academic household. My dad is a retired professor of English literature. And so because of that, I think I was reluctant to continue on to go to grad school right after I finished um, my BA. And I wanted to play music. I wanted to play music. I wanted to play in bands. I happened to go to university about an hour north of Seattle, starting in the autumn of 1989. Oh, wow. So right place, right time then. Exactly. And the town, Bellingham, where I lived, actually had a really active local music scene of its own. At the time, the band that had just come out of there as the biggest band of Bellingham, but they were connected to Seattle by that time, was the Posies, uh, a band I absolutely love as well. And we had Nirvana play at our campus. We had all the bands from Seattle come up. Anyway, I got really involved with the music scene there. I started what was, I think, the first all-girl rock band that had been there maybe ever called Plum Nelly. And then I was in a riot girl band called Hussy. And yeah, and so I was really involved with music. I was involved with music up through my late 20s. And I had moved to Portland at some point. And then I did decide, mm, I would say when I was about 28, 29, I decided I did want to go back and and do a master's degree. I didn't even know I wanted to do a PhD at that point. But as you can tell, I've always been crazy about music. And it did start with the Beatles. It started with the Beatles when I was about five, six years old. I can trace that far back to looking at those and listening to the capital singles that we had been given by a babysitter, my sister and I. And listening to Paperback Writer and Rain, we had that single, Eight Days a Week, and I Don't Want to Spoil the Party. Those are my earliest memories of loving Beatles songs. And I think Eight Days a Week was my most favourite. I, I want to talk about the book. And broadly speaking, I want to, to kind of focus on three areas. The, the first is the way <laughs> in which the Beatles have been hijacked, uh, for want of a better word, by a certain type of man. And hands up, I think I may be that type of man. <laughs> Secondly, the the women in the Beatles story and and to what extent they're given due prominence. And then thirdly, 
this continued influence of the Beatles specifically on women, which are three things you, you cover in the book. Before we get into that, I wondered if you could help me with something that I knock up against, not only when I'm talking about the Beatles uh, and women, but generally when I'm trying to reconcile the past with present values. And just in terms of the Beatles, this is, they were brought up in an era and an environment in which chauvinism was the norm. And they had a lot of those attitudes built in throughout the childhood. They they then go off to work in an industry which at that point, and maybe still is, is very male, especially in places like recording studios. Uh, in terms of the times, there's no arguing that the, the, the 60s were a great time of sexual liberation for women. But a flip side of that is that it's still in a wider context where promiscuity was judged more harshly in women <laughs> than men. It, it wasn't equal. And then in most of the time since they broke up, the areas in which their influence is most keenly felt have continued to be extremely male-dominated. And you do a great job, by the way, in the book of spotlighting women who are inspired by the Beatles and their stories. But I wonder if, like, for every one of those women, there are, there are probably thousands whose creative efforts were strangled at birth by how difficult it has been for women in, in those industries historically. All of that is to, uh, to ask the question, to what degree do we try to sympathetically project our enlightened values of today onto a past where they just didn't exist to the same degree? Yeah, that's such a fascinating thing to think about with the Beatles, because as you rightly point out, the 1960s is this transformational decade, especially for women. And that's why I think it's so interesting to think about women's experiences and the Beatles story together. Um, the idea of maybe the chauvinistic things that members of the Beatles have said during that time. And I think the Hunter Davies authorized biography is really interesting in that way because he actually says something to the effect that he perceives uh, the marriages that Ringo and, and John have with Maureen and Cynthia as being quite traditional. You know, he, and I think Ringo is so, um, so lovely in being self-reflective about that. I think in the anthology, he talks about how the Beatles were really trying to get away from what he calls those flat cap Northern attitudes. Mm that they grew up with. And I think, I think it's so complex because we are products of our time. And I'll put my sociologist cap on for a moment and say that I think we are socialized by our parents and our, you know, family environment, first and foremost. And then we get out into the world and we're also shown what is expected of us as men or women. And so with the Beatles, it's such a complex tale, I think, because when you look at their relationships with their mothers or, you know, the older women in their lives, like Aunt Mimi for John. Um, and I think Paul McCartney has done a brilliant job of uh, sharing some of his observations, not just about his mother, but about Julia Lennon and about Mona Best, Pete Best's mother, where you can sense that 
these guys were growing up with older women around them who were fascinating to them, actually, that they could really see that these women were complex individuals with their own very distinct personalities. And so in that sense, I think all of them, even with John's more complex relationship with his mother, that they are given such um, beautiful examples of how to interact with women, how to appreciate women, how to see women as whole human beings, that that is at their core, all of them. I think that's at their core as, as people, as men. But they go out into the world, into these very more sort of, like you said, the recording studio, the music industry, which at the time are very, if not macho, right, very male dominated and these male spaces where, um, you know, maybe they could only really talk about women or sing about women in their lyrics in the way they really felt about them, but they had to kind of put up this front in that world and and go with the norms of the times, because I think that's just human nature. I mean, everyone wants to be so evolved and so ahead of the curve and, you know, so progressive. But I think there's that sense that it's easy to conform to the norms. So the norms of what it means to be in a relationship with a woman at that time, how you perceive women, you know, at that time, women are fighting against having this two-dimensional aspect to their lives, you know, that they're only the wife and the mother, you know, they want, they want the world to see them as those things, sure, but so much more. And what I think is songs about women is that more often than not, I think that that core understanding of women that they gained when they were boys, when they were really young, absolutely comes through in many of their songs. So I think they're ahead of the curve in that way when they really tap into that essential understanding of women that they do have. And so that's why I think I'm not ready to um, say that sexist or chauvinistic comments that were made are true to them as people. I think that's sort of the oppression of the time, if you will, bearing down on, on them. It's evident in so much of their story, the the want or the need or the compulsion to push forward and we think of it in terms of the creative endeavours, but also I think that was true of them as as people, their, their sort of personal, emotional, or you could say spiritual growth. And I think, that yeah. is, I think that's, that's reflected. I think perhaps what Ahead of the Curve in 1965 looks like compared to today doesn't look very far ahead at all, you know, because it's so behind today. But it's, it's interesting to try to... Um, contextualize them in that way that was that was really useful on those areas that i outlined let's start with this question of the fans then now a, a while ago i talked to daisy and chloe who are two young women who are, have started a podcast called all about the girl about the women in the yeah. Beatles story and something we touched on was this idea that the Beatles <laughs> belonged 
to screaming teenage girls until they became experimental and artistic, at which point they belonged to serious male music fans, which is a silly idea. Um, what, what I don't want to be, though, is reductive about the experiences of those young women. In some mm. ways, Beatlemania was interesting to the media and the world because young girls were thought of as 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 silly and the sight of them screaming and and crying was in some way funny to middle-aged men editing newspapers and and they're often used as a as th- those screams are often used as proof of how insane the world went can you give us a, a different take on the experiences of of those young women and the importance of that what I think is so fascinating about Beatlemania is the fact that girls are at the center of what's going on. And yes, there's that reductive or one-dimensional view of them as the screaming mass. And the fact that they were called maniacs is always troubling, I think. However, when you look at the history of youth culture and youth subcultures, Beatlemania is the one space where girls are front and center in terms of what's happening. Because even in youth subcultures like the mods where a lot of girls are involved, again, it's the boys' stories and the boys' image and their fashion that gets put front and center and, and this anything. is true if we think about sort of rock and roll, uh, yes. teddy boys, rockers with the leather jackets. What about if we go further back to teen idols like uh, Frank Sinatra? Yeah, I mean, you have the Bobby Soxers and you do have those earlier phenomena. But when I think about youth subcultures where girls are at the heart of what's happening, you have to go all the way back to the 1920s with the flappers. When we think of the 20s and what young people were doing, we think of the girls. And so there aren't that many examples in history where we could say, yeah, girls knew what was going on. They were pointing out this amazing thing that's happening. And I think about that appearance on the Ed Sullivan show, the very first shot of the Beatles with all the arrows pointing at them. Here they are, here they are. And I feel all those female fans were the arrows saying, you know, look, come on, you have to pay attention to these guys. And we wouldn't have, you know, the visionary artistic Beatles of the later years had Beatlemania not happened, had those girls not been so emphatic about their adoration. But I want to say too that the stories that came out with some of the women I interviewed who are of that generation, I mean, I think a key theme had to be this idea of freedom and independence and agency. There was one woman whose story uh, about really wanting a pair of the Beetle boots She wanted a pair of beetle boots, even if they were these sort of plastic versions, right? And to her, that was the first thing she had ever bought with her own money. And it symbolized the freedom and joy and independence that the Beatles modeled for her, their music, their style, 
who they were as people, the way they presented themselves. She wanted in on that. And it wasn't just about the screaming. It was about having some sort of connection and even in physical form, you know, having something that symbolized that for her. And I thought that was incredible. There's also that idea of being connected with a community of like-minded people. So these girls would be going to Shea Stadium or they'd be going to these concerts wherever they lived and would hang out all day with other fans. And there was that sense of just being part of the most exciting thing that was happening in the world at that moment. And literally your voice mattered. It was in the form of screams, but if you see some of the footage now that's available through YouTube, I think there's one really great one where I think even a young Meryl Streep is part of the crowd. And these girls are being interviewed right before, I think the 1966, uh, 1966 Shea Stadium concert. And they're being asked, why do they like the Beatles so much? And they're giving really smart, fun answers. And I appreciate those sorts of uh, media being out there right now, because it does give more diversity to that voice. And that's what I wanted to do in the book really was to show these meaningful experiences that have to do with creating your own individual identity. I mean, via through this cultural phenomenon, but shaping your identity as a young person, as a young woman, and feeling that sense of belonging and connection. And yeah, Beatlemania was something that absolutely did that at the time. What? So those are the stories I think are really wonderful. That's so interesting. And it's so interesting as well, what you just said there about the the, the footage that you can find now. It really shows you how much the story of anything at any given time, and you'll, you'll know this as a historian, is so much in the hands of what an a gatekeeper, an editor, a TV producer, what they want to show. So they've got their idea of what Beatlemania looks like. Yes, they might have footage of uh, the, these Vox Pops with smart, funny young women, but what they want is screaming because that's what it looks like to them and that's what people ended up seeing on TV at the time. Absolutely. Don't they call that agenda setting? Isn't that the... Yeah. The technical term yeah. for it. And I'm not even <laughs> sure that people, you know, there's, uh, there's often that, that often has a whiff of the conspiracy theory to it, but I'm not even sure that the people who are setting the agenda at the time really know what they're doing. So, so this exclusion then, this, this thing that we talked about where the, the Beatles have become the property to some extent of chin-stroking male music fans like myself with shelves... <laughs> full of books how, how did that happen why do I when I knock around online why do I see so many people who fit exactly the same demographic as me yeah it's really interesting isn't it the thing is there are so many women who are in that space too and I guess that was part of why I wanted to write this book because throughout my life as a Beatles fan I've encountered just as many women who have that very sharp focused intellectual interest in the Beatles as there are men. But 
I think what happened really is it has a lot to do with the evolution of rock journalism because the really the biographies starting with the authorized biography in 1968 they're all being written by journalists they're not academics i mean we have the academic books coming out way later and because there are articles being published in for instance time magazine that are praising sergeant pepper to the heavens as this visionary piece of art uh Yeah, at that time, the people who are really doing much of the writing about any kind of music are men. And there were there were some women journalists. And I always say that it's doubly ironic to me because the very first people writing seriously about the Beatles in any capacity were people like Maureen Cleave. And I mean, those those profiles, that, she, she'll be a name that's familiar to people who know the, the Beatles story. Um, hope most people would have known her name. But you read those profiles she wrote of each of the Beatles and Brian Epstein for the London Evening Standard. It is fantastic writing that doesn't feel dated. And just mm-hmm. listen to you talk about the evolution of rock journalism. It, it feels like that happened after that, as the music press became this chin-strokey thing focused on mm-hmm. the art of rock. But it, it could have gone, there's no reason it couldn't have gone the other way, because as you say, at that time, w- women were writing really great, journalistically well-written profiles of the Beatles. Yes, and I'm amazed too with some of the British teen magazines and music magazines, some of the writing is really pretty good. When I was looking through at the British Library, looking through all these old magazines like Fabulous, and some of that is actually pretty good quality, especially in my opinion, compared to some of the American teen magazines, which, you know, weren't as in-depth, let's say, in terms of reporting. But I I just think that's fascinating that you do have those women who are the ones, not just the fans, not just the women at the cavern when the Beatles are still a local band, but you have someone from the Evening Standard. You have these women who are writing for all these magazines that are keen to promote this band. And like I said, it's only later when... Uh, the later Beatles albums are coming out that there's this sense that the men obviously were always there too. Boys, teenage boys and young men were fans of the Beatles as well, obviously. But that that sort of what you're talking about, that co-option or that swooping in to sort of claim the Beatles territory or Beatles intellectual territory Uh, It is really happening around that time, 1967, 1968, and then just continues on. And so it's not until the 90s, really, when women of my generation are, uh, there are many more of us, say, in the fields of journalism or broadcasting, and we're deciding we want to study pop culture topics for our PhDs. That's not really happening until... I would say the early nineties. So it is the uh, it's it's not necessarily specific to the Beatles. It's the wider trends in rock journalism and who the sort of serious analysis of music belonged to. Um, 
How how abreast are you of modern fandom? So until doing this show, I wasn't really that cognizant of the the Tumblr world and the Instagram world, and it's 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 very interesting to me that young people, young uh, women especially set up these accounts because maybe you, you'll remember this as well maybe it's the same in the states i remember as a teenager certain girls of my age really getting into james dean and you've got this guy who's frozen in time and i, I guess also because of things like the the, the movie greece and that generation uh of of teenagers from the 50s and 60s having their lives mythologized in in films and other bits of culture it has a knock-on effect on teenagers and you do get this resurgence of interest in some of these stars of the era like elvis or james dean so at first i wondered if the the beatles online fandom is another version of that but looking at it most closely more closely it it seems to be more alive and more contemporary and it's 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 something about the way the fans have taken the Beatles these young fans have taken the Beatles where Mm -hmm. they don't belong in an era anymore yeah I think it has a lot to do just with social media and the availability of these images this imagery uh that is much more than someone from generation x like myself would have had I mean Yes, we did have the posters of James Dean and I there was just less that you could grab onto. There was less information overall. And I, I do think the social media space and the internet does blur time more than previous media. There's, yeah, I think in a way, For Gen Xers, there was always this fascination with the Beatles and the 60s and the 60s per se as this era where we wish we would have been there. And there was this fixation on this this party that we had missed just by a little bit. And the Gen Z crowd, it's very different. And and I I do hear what you're saying. There's this sense of it being so contemporary and so alive rather than it being a little bit of this retro fixation. I mean, I studied mods for my PhD and it was partially because I always grew up thinking the sixties were so groovy and amazing. And, and then I realized there were all these people who were keeping that alive and really living that lifestyle where everything was sixties, everything. And that is a different kind of experience. That is a different youth culture experience than what you're talking about. So it is fascinating to see uh, how the Beatles are being thought of. And in many ways, it is much more how, how are they really present now? How do we interface with them now and not think of them as defining an era or thinking of them always in connection with the 60s? Something that Daisy and Chloe told me about, which I hadn't been aware of, and it was slightly troubling to say the least, was the glorification of, for example, John's marriage to Cynthia, which we know, you know, is isn't uncomplicated, over his choice of Yoko, who, you know, whatever mm-hmm. else he chose her because he felt she was an intellectual 
equal. Um, and I wondered if you had any thoughts on, you know, part of that online fandom amongst young women is glamorizing uh, an ideal of beauty that Cynthia and Patty fit into over mm. at the expense of perhaps Yoko and, and Linda to the extent that you you see the kind of nasty comments uh, about the latter two that, that would have been prevalent in the in the press and in the culture at the time. Yeah, what I think is fascinating is the millennials and the Gen Z young women have been really good, though, I think at celebrating Linda and Yoko in a way that is, it's just much more out there than it would have been in the 80s and 90s. I mean, I remember when I was a teenager or in my early 20s, people would still, and people still do, but I'm just thinking there was, I mean, the punk girls always liked Yoko, let's face it, the sort of post-punk alternative girls never had anything bad to say about Yoko. But there were, you know, mean things that were said. And I'm fascinated. And I think it's wonderful that young women now and some young men too are outraged that Linda was especially maligned in some way. They can't believe it. Because I think she is, she fits, I think for them so much that hipster millennial ideal that she's so natural and she's so groovy. And, um, and, you know, the funny thing about that, I often think about how Yoko and Linda both really looked so much like a lot of the women of the late sixties, they were a bit more, you know, they weren't wearing makeup. They were a bit more groovy. And I think Linda sometimes used to refer to herself as a hippie chick. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so I think about why why was it shocking then that John and Paul would be attracted to these women uh, because they were so much of that time as well. You know, yeah. the, the, era, the era of the Dolly Bird from the sort of mod mid-60s, that time had passed. Yes. So they were actually really on trend, as yeah. the young people say, yeah. for that time. And, and the Beatles uh, are also, they they as men are, I wouldn't say getting a, a, a free pass, because I think some people struggle with the transition, but people are much more comfortable with the fact that the, the Beatles were these clean-cut guys in suits and now, you know, look like the Pilgrim Fathers on acid um, mm-hmm. than, than they are that they're dating women who are, are, are more of that sort of aesthetic exactly I mean that's what I've been I've mentioned in a couple other interviews you know why was it so problematic for people when they were hearing the Beatles creating these songs like I am the walrus and strawberry fields forever and all you need is love and they're like you said they're no longer in suits they're they're seen as somehow aligned with the counterculture, even if they're not specifically in it, but they are culturally aligned with it. And so why why wouldn't the public expect the Beatles to gravitate towards women who are also um, looking for, you know, new ways to inhabit the world, you know, new ways to, to move through the world and explore different things and kind of be 
out, out of the box, you know, be a little bit far out to use the terminology of the time. Um, yeah, I, I, I think that's so strange. I mean, maybe it says something more about the conservative attitudes of the media and the press at the time, more so than what fans were actually thinking. Something, something I've thought about the women in the Beatles story, and I, I think I perhaps, you know, knowing that I'm going to be talking to you, I've given this some thought, uh, and I, I feel like I'm perhaps complicit in this. It feels like the the first hand account Beatles history books, more weight is given to somebody say who worked at Apple or for Brian Epstein or or at Abbey Road and dealt with the Beatles in a kind of professional arm's length way than to mm. the to the accounts of the women who lived with them and had far more insight into what that experience was for for them as as men and as as people and how it was affecting them on a, an emotional level and what it looked like you know kind of on a on a day-to-day basis why do you think that is well again it's that idea of separating what quote unquote, the boys versus the girls are interested in, right? Right. It's that idea that, you know, we're going to look very earnestly and seriously at every detail of the music making process. And, you know, I'm very interested in that. A lot of uh, women fans are interested in that as well. And that's what you get from those accounts. You get the deep dive into the music making process and the recording process And that's part of the story that is really fascinating. On the other hand, from the memoirs from Patty and Cynthia or uh, Chris O'Dell's book, you know, you get more of that, uh, the side that has to do with relationships, the relational aspects of, of those marriages or those friendships. And of course, you're getting their perspective on what they saw going on professionally as well. But as you point out, it's coming from a much different perspective because they're not in that professional world with the Beatles. They're their partners. Uh, Chris O'Dell, you know, as a friend and as someone who's working at Apple, that's, you know, she's kind of in between. Uh, and so her perspective is very specific as well. But I think the wonderful thing about the Beatles and the reason why, you know, I think people can provide these different accounts or these different histories or biographies is because there are those different ways that you can approach the topic. There are so many ways. I think that's why the fandom is unique. And I think that's why the the library of books that have built up around the Beatles is unique is because there's so many ways in to the Beatles. You, you can find those things that you're most interested in about the Beatles story, whether it's their music, whether it is this fairy tale story of the Beatles, whether it's the relationships. Uh, for me as a woman who's always been in love with their music and has grown up with their story and it's just always been so much a part of my life I I wanted to know more about women's experiences with the Beatles and relationships with the Beatles whether it was a parasocial relationship or you know an intimate personal relationship and 
that's why I wrote the book, but other people have other reasons for contributing to this ever-growing Beatles library. <laughs> You're right. And I, I think the Ways In thing is so important. I, I keep saying wherever you drill, you'll strike gold. It doesn't matter. You can drill anywhere and you'll find something. How much do you think would be unlocked by understanding Jane Asher's story from her perspective more than we do? Because I think about her a lot. Um, you know, she's such an interesting character based on what we do know there doesn't seem to be anything of the doormat to her in a way that people mm. can sometimes perceive Cynthia as being this wife out in the in the in the mm. suburbs whilst her husband's getting up to god knows what I mean not to say that Paul didn't get up to god knows what but Jane doesn't seem oblivious to it she also mm. I mean if his lyrics are to be believed and he could be quite oblique but she she seems to have the emotional upper hand in a lot of ways. This is a relationship that ends with a broken engagement, but then she is also there at the Let It Be premiere. Yeah, well after Paul has married Linda, her brother continues to work for Apple. Um, I think she's so important and her family are so important to the story, but it does feel mm -hmm. like a, a sort of a big, we've got lots of missing information because of her, in a way that I think is ultimately quite classy, refusal to, sp mm -hmm. to speak mm -hmm. about it. I have so much respect for Jane Asher. And I, I, I think since I was a little girl, I was especially for whatever reason fascinated with her. And I think it was because my sister and I not only shared in this Beatles obsession, but 1960s obsession. And so we saw Alfie and she's in that movie and, uh, you know, her, her style, the fashion, I love that period of fashion. And I, I love that there's a mystery there. I, I love uh, the enigmatic aspect of that story that we just aren't privy to that information. And like you said, I think I agree. It's very classy. It was a choice. I'm sure she made a long time ago and certainly it would be fascinating for all of us Beatles fans. And I think an aspect of that story that I always think is so groovy is that it was one of those situations where Paul fell in love with Jane, but also fell in love with what she offered, how she opened up this different kind of world yes. and her family. Yes. He kind of fell in love with the whole Asher clan, the whole family. Yes. Uh, and was living in the house. And her mother is a music professor. And, you know, that is, it's so switched on. It's so interesting. And uh, and then what that brings I, to the Beatles as well. I mean, he he takes. Exactly. Uh, um, I think he has done a a very good job, and it's obviously been important to him to reclaim that side of his his story. That mm -hmm. he he opened the Beatles' minds to all that. But I think yes. a lot of his introduction to it was through the world that they she and her family introduced him to. Absolutely. So. I'm appreciative of what we do know and what Paul has been willing to share. And I did find a few really interesting 
news stories from around the time of the breakup. There was an Australian interview that I quote just a tiny bit out of that in the book. And, you know, she was interviewing with people at that time, at the time of the breakup, and would say little bits and pieces about it. But I absolutely respect her code of silence. It's you know, but it, it, it is what it is. And there are other people who are very willing uh, to come forward and share their stories uh, of connection with the Beatles story. And I'm grateful for the people who have done that as well. But yeah, I, I don't think we'll be hearing more. We've got, you're saying we've got enough to join the dots, if not quite colour in the entire picture. Well, I think the biographies that are out there, and certainly I think the authorized biography gives us the biggest window into that relationship. And that's where I think we do get that sense of her being really confident in herself in that relationship and really enjoys her career. And that's very important to her. And I must think that Paul would have really enjoyed that you know, that she was so committed to her passion in life, just like he was. Yeah, I, th- I think it's, you know, again, I think it shows the conflict between these boys who grew up where the, the women were far more three-dimensional than men than the men and, and very colourful, matriarchal, powerful characters, and yet still expected to do the washing and keep the house shiny and and cook the food and it's in both Paul and John you see that conflict between that expectation of what a woman should be and the way their minds have been opened to to who who a woman is and I think there's always a a, a struggle between those two things um just let's just rattle through a, a few things um Yoko so I mean I I blow hot and cold on her as a person i think she's incredibly important to the story and hugely in, important to john and he perceived her as this intellectual equal um the interesting question is like why do i feel that and it's not just me obviously why why do we feel like we need to have an opinion on what kind of a person yoko is when there are other people in that beatles story that we accept nuance and shades of grey from far more than we we do her. I think because the way that she was portrayed for so long was incredibly negative. I I think, at least speaking for myself and uh, the way she comes up in the book and even the chapter about the Beatles' wives and girlfriends is named after a song called Don't Blame It on Yoko. And I so strongly felt that that needed to be the title of that chapter, even though obviously it's about all the women in the story um, who were partners during the 60s and beyond. But there was so much negativity directed at Yoko that... I hadn't really seen one particular bit of writing. I mean, actually, in terms of academic writing, there is a lot of writing about Yoko, but about her art as well about, you know, her role in the Beatles story. So there's actually a lot of attention paid to her and usually, you know, very positive. But in terms of Beatles biographies or cultural histories of any kind, I didn't 
think there was something out there that really focused on trying to subvert that mass of negativity. So certainly Yoko's, the perception people have of Yoko anyway, I think there's been a softening to a certain degree compared to what it was in 1968, 69, and even through the 70s. And of course, because of John's murder at that time, I think there was definitely a, a softening towards Yoko. But as I said, I felt like I needed to take a stand about her, you know, and and focus on why I think she's such a fascinating individual and a fascinating part of the story. And that I wanted to, you know, not whitewash things, but I wanted to just focus on the positive in, in Yoko within the Beatles story, because I still think there is too much negativity directed towards her even now let's let's just talk finally uh, and briefly about that final area which is the influence on of the beatles on women beyond their time and we've we've touched on it a bit with the uh, with the the gen z and millennial fans but in the book you meet women who have gone into that beatles world tour guides authors uh musicians researchers like yourself and yeah, those those spheres have, as we talked about, been traditionally very, very male dominated. And it occurred to me that even recently, even I, th- I think 10 or 15 years ago, people would just say, oh, yes, but there's a certain type of obsessiveness that belongs to the male brain. I think, you know, th- this kind of cod psychology or neuroscience about male brains <laughs> and what males are drawn to versus what women are drawn to was used <laughs> to... Uh, cover a multitude of sins for a long time. Hopefully that's changed a bit. What what obstacles do you think still exist? Well, it's definitely easier now. There's been so much support. From the time I started this project, when I would tell people, I'm writing a women's history of the Beatles. And men and women, whether they were Beatles fans or just academics I know or people in neither of those worlds, their ears would prick up and they'd say, oh, yeah, yeah, I'd like to read that book. Mm. That seems to be one that needs to be written. In that sense, there was a lot of support from the get-go. I felt so much joy and happiness working on this project, connecting with all the women I interviewed and just digging through all the archival research, going to the British Library back in 2016 when all of this started, going to Liverpool, doing the research there. But I think I also felt a sense of vulnerability in a way, because I think whenever you embark on something that is new, it's a bit scary. And I thought, well, I don't know how this is going to be received, especially by sort of the chin-stroking cohort that you're talking about you know is there is there room for this kind of work what how will it be received and I definitely want to emphasize that this this book is about just foregrounding and sharing those experiences that haven't really been documented for the most part 
So there's only one chapter that focuses on the stories people know a bit better in terms of Yoko and Linda and all the wives and girlfriends. The rest I'm hoping is really a new uncharted territory for most readers. And so it's, it's in no way um, putting anyone down, right? It's just about opening up the Beatles world, at least the literary Beatles world into a space where it's just focused on these stories that we haven't heard that are women's stories. Um, some of which, you know, these women have been carrying these stories around since they were 12 years old back in 1964. And of course, there have been memoirs that have been written by first generation fans, and those are brilliant, and I love them. And I interviewed a few women who have done that. But I'm really pleased that I can share with uh, the Beatles fan world and with anyone who's interested in this all these stories also from the second generation of fans and the third generation of fans. But I'm very happy to say that just like the Beatles in my whole life, uh, the band has given me so much joy through their stories that I've taken in and through the music. Uh, I just wanted to create one more joyful thing to share with the world about the Beatles. So I really hope it's taken in that way. Well, that's very much what you've done. I mean, I just, I just feel like you're letting air in. It's like you have opened the the windows of a, a, a library that hasn't had the windows open for for a long time. It's uh, it's it's a joy to read the book. I've asked you to pick a song, which. I'm sure you've agonised over. Which one of you uh, alighted on? Well, it was a real struggle because one of the songs I think says a lot about the relationship between especially uh, female performers or, you know, bands and the Beatles is Dear Prudence because, first of all, the song is so much about um, John really being concerned about this woman in Rishikesh, you know, and so it shows Karen concern for this woman. And I love Susie and the Banshees version of Dear Prudence. That is probably my favorite Beatles cover of all time. And that she is so able to inhabit that song. But I did have to go with She Loves You because to me, it's endlessly fascinating that the song that really did launch the Beatles' career because without British Beatlemania, you couldn't have American Beatlemania and you couldn't have worldwide Beatlemania. So more than I want to hold your hand, for me, it is She Loves You. And wow, musically, that drum roll, it's so exciting. And Ringo's drumming in that song is amazing. There's so much excitement and energy and joy in that song. It's such an invitation, but it is the song that launched the Beatles' career and eventually led to this rock music revolution. And what is it about? It's about a guy telling his friend that he should not take his girlfriend's love for granted. And I think that is really cool. And it says so much about the Beatles. It says so much about why they've mattered and it says so much about why they matter to women 
Before we play that, I'm going to give some quick fire Beatles questions. Which Beatles site that you haven't yet visited would you most like to make a pilgrimage to? I think uh, Rishikesh. Give me a woman in the Beatles story who most deserves her own biopic. Astrid Kirscher. What's funnier, John's rattle your jewellery joke or George's I don't like your tie line to George Martin? Oh, the rattling of the jewellery, for sure. What track or tracks would you bump off the White Album if you were George Martin trying to make it a single album? Oh, no. Maybe Wild Honey Pie? Oh, yeah, that needs to go for me. (laughs) Which Beatle do you think had the waxiest ears? (laughs) Oh, no. I'll have to go with George, maybe. Okay. Put the Beatles in order from, from least likely to most likely to remember your birthday. Okay. Um, I'd have to say John dead last, Ringo second to last, George, and then Paul. I think Paul would probably remember everyone's birthday. What would you like next from the Beatles? Oh, I don't know if this will ever happen, but I would love to see uh, a book of correspondence because I'm so fascinated with looking at letters and diaries and yeah. things like that. It's been a real joy to talk to you. Um, the, the book, as I said, is is fantastic. It's A Women's History of the Beatles. Dr. Christine Feldman Barrett, uh, before you go and before you're drowned out by the A Day in the Life Orchestra, uh, do, you, do you want to tell us why in 2021 we are still discussing the Beatles to the extent that it takes up a, a substantial part of your life in academia? Because... There has been no other band that has so profoundly and so joyfully shaped and influenced people's lives. They're also fascinating of their time, and they are timeless. Um.